Hi, welcome to Off Script. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. And today on the show, we are talking about the latest critically acclaimed Netflix film, Mudbound, and I'll be grilling Andy on his screening of the new Takashi Mike film, Blade of the Immortal. First things first, did I say that right? Takashi Mike? Uh, Mike. Takashi Mike? Yes. Ah, uh, the double eyes got me. Uh, first on the show, let's start with the news, which coincidentally is a little Disney-centric this week because Disney rules the freaking world. Uh, the first trailer for the latest Marvel movie, Avengers Infinity War, hit the internet this week to a record-breaking 200 million views in the first 24 hours, just beating out previous record holder It that had 197 million views. This trailer was a big deal, Andy. Did you see it? Yeah, r- right away. <laughs> I was like, Right away. I think I, I woke up... And it was, um, it had come out. So yeah. I, I dashed to my my computer to, to check it out. I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm one of those people starting to get a little burned out on the superhero film. Uh, so I waited a few hours, but I watched it eventually. And it was <laughs> just, as, just as epic as I had thought it was going to be. The internet really liked it. It had like a, a million mentions on Twitter in the first seven hours. People were blown up. About Captain America's beard, amongst yeah. other things. <laughs> right. Um, first things first, what'd you think? I mean, I was really hyped by it. And, you know, that's what I want a trailer to do. I want a trailer to get me excited about a movie that's coming out. And this is what I felt kind of lacked about the Justice League uh, promotion and trailer. And, like, nothing really got me that, like, <gasps> that gasp moment where you just like, oh, I, I can't wait to see that. Right. I felt the same way. I mean, there's certainly a lot of powerful imagery in there. To cover some of the big things, I did a little, uh, did a little reconnaissance. Captain America's got a beard. Uh, we had a cool sequence of Spider-Man's Spidey sense. It's actually really awesome. Uh, Doctor Strange makes friends with Hulk and Iron Man. Black Widow is now blonde. Wakanda's under siege. We get a shot of Thor meeting the Guardians of the Galaxy crew, uh, featuring a teenage Groot. Uh, we get Thanos, Infinity Stones, and the Infinity Gauntlet. We even get a shot of what appears to be a extra villain that works with Thanos in the comics. Somebody named Pro- Proxima Midnight. Proxima. Do you know anything about that? No. No. Okay. Well, it was like <laughs> it was like eight frames or something, and somebody was like, "Look, we broke down the trailer and oh, saw this God. thing." Yeah. I, See, I, I, I try to avoid fr- the frame by frame analysis because yeah. then I, I feel you start speculating too much, and then you, you're going to ruin the movie for yourself. Right, you can't forget that this is Disney, uh, the people that made the Rogue One trailer. Like they, they're not against putting in something that's not in the final movie. They've done it before. Exactly. So, it, yeah, it's worth considering when you watch. And, and I think this is supposed to be just like the teaser trailer, right? This isn't even the first official trailer. Right, well, I feel like they're doing this thing where they're skipping the kind of traditional teaser where usually you just have about 30 to 45 seconds of... A very, logo. Yeah, very limited yeah. footage followed by a logo. And now, and they've done this with some of their other films where they're showing you more um, from that first trailer. Right. And I'm cool with that because I, I hate the old teaser trailers. Like, just the logo ones are the worst. How many times have you clicked a teaser trailer and that's all it was with no footage or anything? Right. Like it, doesn't, it doesn't get you teased. It just kind of makes you angry. So it, I can get behind this. It can be effective. You know, I think of the, the Dark Knight teaser that just had dialogue and you just had the bat symbol. Um, kind of on screen and it, it just it slowly kind of light it light comes on behind it but you hear batman talking alfred and eventually the joker yeah and i'm surprised to again surprised a little bit by one the way they name the film it doesn't have a part one on the end which i figured it would and i wonder if they're kind of drawing inspiration from it 
because it kind of pulled that. Like, it, it is part one, but they didn't explicitly say it part one in the title sure. or anything. Right. Uh, and I was surprised, yeah, by the by the hype. People are on the hype train. Like, really? Come on. We've, <laughs> we've seen, like, 27 superhero films. Like, we all know. It's going to be just like Civil War, except they're all going to be fighting together again. Like, yay, great. But, like... I don't know. I don't know. It's it's going to be a whole CGI I, fest. I, I yeah, was all... See, the thing... I'm, like, the conductor of the hype train. Like, I used to try to avoid it. <laughs> I used to try to avoid it, and now I'm just, like, choo-choo. Like, I'm just, right. like, jumping on it right away. To um, be fair, it is it is way more fun to ride the hype train. Yeah, well, and, and part of what I think really impressed me is just there's so many people and so many heroes in this film you know justice league looks quaint with its four or five heroes compared to like the 20 or, or more that they're gonna get in this movie yeah i don't know the production budget they must have had for it but like simply in casting it must have been outrageous i mean absolutely my god like they have so many stars in there playing parts um so yeah we'll we'll stay tuned we'll report on the next one it'll be great uh any other thoughts on the infinity war trailer um, other than that, I'm really excited to, to see it. And I, I think it's going to be, it's going to be the first thing that we've seen of that scale. You know, they do these kinds of big crossovers in, in comics all the time. You know, they're, they're these big crossover events, but it's never really been done on screen. Mm-hmm. And I, apprehensive i i'm worried it's going to be like thunderingly mediocre but honestly uh, based on the fan reaction and the way it looks it does look like it's going to be a tremendous movie so we'll stay tuned i guess uh if there's nothing else we have to say about it um next story uh disney resumes talks with 21st century fox to purchase certain parts of the company they had been talking about buying all of 20 21st century fox for a little while then that kind of backed off according to what I've read, it seems that they're talking about purchasing certain parts of it, certain certain IPs, buying the rights to certain sections of it. And I want to talk about what that is they seem to want to buy um, and what we think of it. So mm-hmm. first thing, the things I would think they'd want to buy from 20, 21st Century Fox, they want to buy X-Men. Right. They want to buy Fantastic Four. Uh, I'll bet they want to buy the original distribution rights to the first six Star Wars films. Those okay. all seem like layups. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think they are building uh, the Avatar theme park, what, in Florida? I bet they want the rights to that because they oh, don't have it. Okay. And then according to, of all websites, Screen Rant, uh, supposedly they want the rights to The Simpsons, hmm. which I don't really see happening. I'm like, man, I, I don't know. Like, The Simpsons is like 25 seasons in or something. Nobody really watches it anymore. I don't know why Disney would want that. But I don't know. If they're making big purchases, maybe they're... Maybe it's something they've been eyeballing for a while. Yeah. Um, the, the trying to get X-Men and Star Wars, especially the distribution rights, are really huge. They've kind of... Disney's had to work around not owning X-Men um, in, I, th- I think, Civil War or the first Avengers. No, <laughs> Age of Ultron. You know, they have uh, Scarlet Witch and the the fast guy. I can't remember who he is, but they Quicksilver. Quicksilver. Yeah. So they specifically can't call them X-Men, but they can refer to them as like meta humans, but they're, those are X-Men characters. I just can't call them that. So, you know, if they got those back, I mean, you might be looking at an X-Men reboot or something of that, you know, to that extent. Sure. I I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to see the X-Men characters and Fantastic Four characters like finally really engaging with other Marvel properties. That's great. Mm -hmm. But what's scary about this is is Disney's reach. Disney owns Pixar. They own Marvel. They own 
Star Wars. They also own Touchstone Pictures, which a lot of people forget about. Um, now they're looking to buy parts of 21st Century Fox. Disney is destroying the box office. I mean, they're, they're, they're killing it lately, which is great for them. But, like, it's scary to see all of these properties falling under one umbrella because... Right. I don't know. You're putting all your eggs in one basket a little bit. And just like how 21st Century Fox owning, owning X-Men has kind of skewed like their their way down a cinema universe and and they've kind of messed with those properties in a way that people are kind of uncomfortable with and and people want them together even if disney gets x-men and fantastic four and puts them together with other marvel things now they're just under the disney logo but it's the same problem like you lose that creativity you lose a little bit of of unique ambiguity because it's, it's all being pushed through by one studio disney is not afraid to make movie after movie after movie after movie in a cinematic universe until they run it into the ground not that they've done that yet with with Avengers or, or Marvel or Star Wars or anything, but that seems to be what they're going for. They're, I don't know, man. It freaks me out. Yeah, I'm a little <laughs> bit of a cynic that way. It's it's the monopolization of of uh, intellectual property, you know. And yeah. Diverse and it, I imagine it kind of hurts competition uh, as well. If you if you have all the big properties, you know, in your in your bag. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's it's. The monopoly part portion is exactly what scares me, and it's it's a frightening thing to think of that in entertainment because we don't want to think about um, economics and, and and kind of the the culture of that affecting what we what we watch in a theater in the middle of the summer, you know. But I don't know. On the one hand, I love Disney. On the other hand, like who knows? They're getting a little big, you know. Yeah. So it's it's a frightening thing. Um, I would I like guess... to see Fantastic Four done right because the. That pro- that comic property has probably been the worst done of of all of them. I mean, they've right. had two goes at it, and they've both been really bad, really embarrassing to watch. And and everyone complains that these are that it is a great property that's just been ruined. So it would be interesting to see a good version of Fantastic Four. Yep. Well, believe it or not, that about wraps movie news. I, I had more, but we only have so much time, so we'll move on to Mudbound. If, you, if that's cool, did you have anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, no, Mudbound's cool. Mudbound, <laughs> right? Uh, Mudbound. You found this movie. You recommended it to me. It wasn't really on my radar. So, how did you how did you stumble across this? So I saw it on uh, you know the short videos that they that Netflix puts out saying what's coming to Netflix next month or this month or what's leaving. Um, so I saw I saw a brief snippet of it, and then I later saw a trailer, and it just it looked like a very serious, very heavy movie. And I started seeing some headlines saying that this was like an Oscar-worthy film, and w- would the Academy recognize uh, a film from Netflix? Um, and and so I, I I thought I would uh, you know sit down and watch it and see what right. it was and all about. When did you watch it? Uh, earlier this week, about a week ago. Okay, and I watched it last night. Actually, about really this morning, if you want to be accurate in time. <laughs> it was it was like 2 a.m. When, when I finished watching this movie. Um, yes, to, to briefly sum up Mudbound, and I couldn't find a good like description, really, so I'm just ripping it off Rotten Tomatoes. Set in the rural American South during World War II, Mudbound is an epic story of two families pitted against one another by a ruthless social hierarchy, yet bound together by the shared farmland of the Mississippi Delta. Mudbound follows the McAllen family, a newly transplanted white family from the quiet civility of Memphis, and unprepared for the harsh demands of farming. Uh, it also follows a black family, the Jackson 
Americans, sharecroppers who've worked the land for generations, who struggle to build a small dream of their own despite the rigidly enforced social barriers they face. World War II upends both families' plans as their returning loved ones, Jamie and Roncel, forge a fast but uneasy friendship that challenges the brutal realities of the Jim Crow South in which they live. That is a mouthful. Andy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a com- it's a complex film, and that's the first place I think to start. It is two hours and fifteen minutes. It is a it's 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 a movie, man. It's it's not like Coco. It's not eighty six minutes. You're in and you're out. You sit down and you get into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it it's it's no joke, and it's it's serious. It's it's played very straight. And one of the things, just right off the bat, I really enjoyed is just how genuine it was in its presentation. The set design and the costuming from Mudbound mm-hmm. is spot on. It looks so good. Like, every every set they're on, anytime they're in a house or out in a field, or whether they're in high society New York, whether they're in Germany, whether right. you're in Mississippi, it always looks so good. The costuming is great. It, like, everything, it's almost Mad Men levels of appearance. Right. What One of the things that sticks out to me in that area is just how how kind of dirty everything looks and everything feels like I feel like no one is ever clean in in the movie because you know they live on on the farm and everything's a dirt road it rains a lot there's just they have to take showers outside I mean in the mud half the time and it's just it's so dirty and and gritty and it really pulls you into this farm life aesthetic yeah Carrie Mulligan's character Laura uh, has this brilliant line just a few minutes in the movie she says you know after she's She's reflecting on her time at this farm and how jaded she's kind of become by farm living. And she she says that she dreams in brown. And I thought that was so appropriate for the movie because it almost, it's not in sepia or anything, but it's a really high contrast movie. They really up the blacks in frame. And so it's really, it's really dark. And while it's got rich color, like it's almost, it's almost like a sepia tone quality. Frames are often vignetted. There's just a lot of shadow, you know, everything's lit by either daylight which is really stark to the rain which seems to always be impending or like candle candlelight torch light sometimes uh maybe occasionally electric lamps um but for the most part it's very basic it's set in the 30s i think and yeah just that that kind of muddled color i think plays so much to the tone of the film and also the mud, yeah, which seems to be ever-present. It is always muddy in this movie. From the opening scene when two when the two brothers of the McAllen family are, are digging a hole in front of an impending storm uh, and they're covered in mud, to the end when the characters are walking away down a muddy road. Um, and these storms are, are very much an impending kind of a thing. I mean, the, the, the theme of storms, what did you think of that, Andy? Um, it kind of reflects just you know, times of peace and times of, uh, of great, great violence. Uh, you know, it's the title Mudbound, I think actually refers to, to, to dying or death, you know, like you are bound to go back to the mud, back to the earth. Um, yeah. Was, is kind of what I, I took away from it. Um, one of the things that really impresses me is just the dynamics between these two families, um, because it's kind of this relationship where people with power and people without, but that they still need each other. Um, you know the right. go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say right. No, you're absolutely right. you're absolutely right. The duality um, presented between these families is is incredible. Both have um, patriarchal figures in uh, Hap Jackson and Henry McAllen. Both have a mother figure um, in Florence Jackson. I'm getting these names all mixed up. Florence mm-hmm. Jackson and is Laura McAllen. Mm-hmm. Both have somebody who went to war, uh, a son or a younger figure in the family, uh, Jamie 
played by Garrett Headland, and Roncel played by um, um, J- Jason, thing where Mitch- I don't remember Jason Mitchell. Nice moves, yeah, with the pickup. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and these two families, despite their differences, are are mirrored to each other by the kind of this lens of societal conflict in in a post-racism world where clearly in Mississippi it's still a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the way the movie really kind of sticks out to me because I think you have to be kind of careful about making movies that are just about racism because a lot of people will be just turned off about that. I mean, I've seen, I've heard people say, oh, that's just a movie to make me feel guilty about being white or, you know, similar things. You know, the, these are the way people react. And uh, to me, this movie is about the transition from r- racism, from segregation to integration and to the end of, of racism because you have the kind of the older members of the family um, the grandfather played by uh, Jonathan Banks um, from Breaking Bad, who is super racist and like just, <laughs> I mean, he, he just, yeah. he, he doesn't want to be around black people, doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want to like be on the same road. And then you have his son played by Jason Clark, who owns the farm, who's trying to run the farm, who is kind of what I would call passively racist, where he has no sympathy for the plights of of the black family you know at one point there's a character who gets injured and he's like well um you know are you are you gonna get back and work the farm because we still need to get the crops by and it's like this character can barely be on their feet and you're expecting them um you know to work the land and then you have the younger generations uh you know played by uh ronzel and um jamie the two that go off to war who have this friendship and it kind of represents you know, the hope of the youth and how the progression away from racism. And the same thing with Carrie Mulligan's character and uh, Mary J. Blige. They're kind of in the middle, but leaning toward away from old deep-seated racism. So to, right. me, to me, it's about it's about the hope of the future, but it's also about like the pains of change and how change isn't easy and how it, it, it's just, it can be very difficult and there can still be lots of violence. And I mean, there's lots of really... Uh, heavy scenes, uh, things that are hard to watch. Yeah, one of the one of the themes I, I really enjoyed in the movie was the, just that the kind of that that hope of the future and also the pain of the past. Um, one of the most interesting things about it, and this is based on a book, I should say. This isn't an original screenplay; it's adapted. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed was the presentation of the white family versus the black family and the presentation in society. The white family moves from like high up end, I think New York or Los Angeles, maybe right. somewhere, a big city. city, right out to a farm. And despite their best efforts, things aren't going that well. It, it's not really working out for them. The, the, the fields are flooded by the rains. Like they're having a tough time and they're struggling. And Henry kind of has this conflict where it's not really maybe he's done the wrong thing here you know mm-hmm. meanwhile you've got but but they own the farm they 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 own the land it's theirs they 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 they're very particular about that um meanwhile you've got the jacksons who are sharecropping there and while they don't have a lot they have each other and it's interesting that hap jackson kind of presents himself and his wife and his family as sure that they're able to help but they don't they they aren't owned by anybody they're their own people and mm-hmm. they surround themselves in kind of these elements of culture that they can get um and i always thought that was interesting whenever henry approaches hap jackson almost every time hap is either on a wagon sitting above him which is interesting in frame because you have a character sitting above another one implying mm-hmm. yeah or hap is inside and henry is outside 
and that was intriguing. He Hap is in his house. He's surrounded by a kind of a warm light. His, his walls are covered in newspaper, which was easy wallpaper back then. But he's surrounded in what feels like culture and institution and civilization. He's right. inside. He's indoors. Hap is, meanwhile, Henry's outside. He's in a field. He's, he's, he's out in the middle of nowhere. He's, he's, he doesn't have that. And he's approaching Hap for help. And there's this kind of interesting duality to their characters in that way. Well, and that's what I meant by power dynamics is even though, you know, the white family owns the farm, they need the Jacksons to help work it. And the Jacksons need, you know, their sharecroppers. They hope to one day not be sharecroppers. And so they have to kind of, you know, hope, hope that their owners keep them on on and that they are happy with their work uh, so they can one day own them. And then the other, the other, um, interesting dynamic it's not just white versus black but it's also not rich to poor but like people that have money versus poverty because there's there they do have white um uh, farm hands and uh, one of them gets fired very early on and you can hear him like putting up a real argument about why no i really need this job um and then there's the other there's the, the two girls who are also on the on the land and they don't really explain what their right. role is, what they're doing, but they're they're also kind of at the mercy of of the McAllen family, right? And they've got it's it's Vera who I presume is in a relationship or married to Carl, the the farm the white farmhand who was fired, and her daughter, I think. They, yeah, they don't really explain. They kind of mm-hmm. just show up and and they're around, um, and they're not around that much of the film, but they do play an interesting role in that they're a white family who's clearly not doing well they're it's not working out for them and it's kind of a cautionary tale to the to the to the other white family the Mm -hmm. mccallans like here's what you don't want to happen you know like this Mm -hmm. is bad uh so they kind of play an interesting role in the movie Mm -hmm. and and that kind of reflects on economic inequality is sure kind of what i took away from that um the other interesting thing is you know i i kept thinking there were two girls that they're not i thought they were sisters and one is clear is actually the daughter and that's kind of a a whole nother topic about you know obviously she's had this child incredibly young and yeah you know and then she another point uh that what what was that character's name i can't remember her name vera Vera? yeah i don't remember the daughter's name i didn't catch it um well anyways one of them's pregnant down the line too and and again it just these hints of of poverty versus kind of middle class you know it's touched on as well uh, the right. last, the last thing I kind of want to mention that stuck out to me are the the voiceovers uh, throughout the film. You know, yeah. it's, it starts off with um, a monologue, and I can't remember who starts, but Jamie, I think, is okay. the first one. Okay. I think, or Henry. Um, no, I think it's Jamie. But but the my point is is that all the characters at one point or another do a voiceover, do a monologue, and it's it was just a, a really good technique to kind of draw you into the film because you kind of get an insight into how they're feeling, how they're thinking, and they'll kind of do these monologues about Southern wisdom or just the way situations are. And it's, it's just a real interesting touch and to have so many voiceovers. Cause usually you know, you'll have one or two characters do a voiceover. Um, so it's interesting to have, I mean, probably seven or eight characters do a full, you know, long thought out thing. Right. I, I was very fascinated I, yeah, because I, I was taking notes as I watched the movie and that was one, something I noted a couple times is whenever it would jump in voiceover. And by the end, I realized, OK, I had six or seven different people that did voiceover in this movie. Like it's surprising, you know, to, to kind of move the narrative along to get that many different perspectives. But that's kind of the importance it lays on its characters. It's 
they drive the movie and and kind of understanding where each one of them comes from really does play towards the whole experience it's almost an ensemble drama um right which made me want to ask you about the performances who did you like in this movie who who were you a fan of because some of the performances are really great yeah uh carrie mulligan uh who's always great she's great in shame and um uh drive that that's where yes. she first kind of came on my radar uh mary j blige's character is really good um it's rob marshall rob morgan who plays uh hap jackson um, who's done a lot of work on TV and in Netflix in the Netflix uh, superhero series? Uh, right. Of... Is he? This is going to sound pointed. Is he one of the cops on Stranger Things? Yes. Because yeah, I thought that was him, and I was like, I would not expect a performance like that from a cop in Stranger Things, but he was great. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the guy who pl- plays Ronzel, uh, Jason Mitchell, also really good performance and. Yeah, I mean, it's really strong performances all around. It, it will be interesting to see if it gets any kind of Academy mention, maybe for writing or, you know, it's this weird thing with Netflix and, and the Oscars. Some people are like, no, it's not real cinema or it's not real film. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what, ha- what happens come Oscar season. It's true. Uh, I was really impressed by Garrett Hedlund as Jamie McAllen, the younger brother. He's kind of a charming individual who struggles with kind of is his mindset post-war also yeah the the, the guy who played ronzel at rob marsh jack i god i'm terrible about <laughs> this i know <laughs> I, I i'm telling you I, I get notes i pull up summaries i don't have actors that's my one spot i'm missing anyway oh, okay. jason mitchell was brilliant uh mary j blige was almost unrecognizable in her role she was fantastic uh really impressed by carrie mulligan and jason clark he had this he did this great thing as Henry where he, de- he often delivers lines um, to Hap Jackson uh, or, or the other members of the black family with kind of a kind of an insidious. He, he'll say something politely, but in a manner that is forceful, like, yeah. hey, rather than say, hey, I need your help. It's um, come help me with this. But he his delivery is fantastic. Yeah. Really good. Um, yeah. And just strong performances all around. As far as the film goes with Oscar season. I don't know if it's going to win any Oscars. I'd love to see it at least nominated a couple times, uh, if not win a couple. I mean, it, it was it's a good movie, and it's one of those situations where if I had paid the price of admission to see this in a theater, I would have enjoyed it, but, like, I probably would have never have gone to see this in a theater. Like, I might have gone to the Angelica and caught a screening, maybe, but odds are I would have missed it. I would have waited for it to show up on HBO or something. Debuting on Netflix gets me to see this movie and gets people like us to have conversations like this. It's right. effective. That and we I don't otherwise think, wouldn't have. Right, and I don't think whether or not it's on Netflix or the silver screen makes it any less of a brilliant film. Um, it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth watching. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. Highly recommended. Highly recommended. Um, so moving on from Mudbound, I suppose, uh, this week on The Death of Cinema... I would say we should talk about Netflix and the Oscars, but we'll save that till we get closer to Oscar season. Sure. This week, what are we talking about, Andy? I don't want to steal your thunder. <laughs> well, um, this week we are talking about Movie Pass. Movie Pass, yes. <laughs> okay, so Movie Pass is um, is a subscription service that's it's been around for a while, and it originally was uh, you pay fifty dollars a month, which is a lot, but you see get to see unlimited films, and when you price out. You know, the price of the average movie, 10 to 12 bucks, depending on when you go, you know, you would need to see probably about four or four movies a month. Um, so it's been around for a while, has only had about 50,000 or so subscribers total. 
And then back in August, they announced that they were lowering their price from $50 a month to $10 a month. Um, and it exploded. I mean, hundreds of thousands of, I think they're up to about 250,000 subscribers now. Um, tons of people signed up for it. And uh, it seems almost too good to be true. You pay $10 a month and you can see as many movies as you want. You know, it's basically Netflix for going to going out to the new movies. Um, but it hasn't been necessarily um, kind of engaged by all like film studios and, and theaters. Um, so let me just talk about a little bit about how it works. So you sign up on online or through an app and you, they send you a card that's like a, a MasterCard. It's, it's, it's a debit card essentially. And then, like, when you want to go see a movie, you, you go to the theater, and you go, you find the, the listing, the time that you want to go on their app, and you select it, and then MoviePass buys the ticket on your behalf, and then they put it on your debit card, or something like that. And so, basically, they're subsidizing the ticket price, and for you to go see as many movies as you want. Um, however, there are a lot of restrictions. Uh, you can only see one movie per day. And it one 2D movie, so you can't see IMAX, you can't see uh, 3D or any special special events. You have to buy most tickets in person. Um, they have very few online ticket options. Uh, most of the most of the theaters are not not on board with that. Uh, places like Studio Movie Grill, you can you know buy a ticket online. Otherwise, you have to go to the theater and you have to you can only purchase within an hour of the showtime. So you can't like buy tickets early in the day for an evening showing. Um, so there's a lot of hoops to jump through, um, but, but despite that, there's tons of people that have signed up for it, and there's people I've seen online that, oh, I'm going to go see, I saw 10 movies this month on MoviePass. It's it's the greatest thing thing ever. Uh, the big question is, though, is how long can it really last? Because right. they're losing money hand over fist. I mean, if you do the simple math, if you go see three movies, at, let's say 10 bucks a piece, so you've cost them $30, but you've only paid them 10. So they, they've lost $20, $20 off you. And if everyone does that, then they're going to be out of money pretty quick. So their whole strategy is that they're, they're going to sell a lot of data. That's part of, of what they, they want to do. They were actually bought or a large stake was sold to a, a data corporation. But then they also want to, you know, maybe get a cut of the concessions or get a cut of the, the profits because what they're saying is they're offering value by bringing lots of, of film goers to theaters. And so they're hoping to maybe get a cut of the, the profits off the back end. Um, but we don't really, really know. Uh, right. It does. Most people don't think it's going to be sustainable or that they're going to have to raise prices substantially to stay afloat. Um, AM, AMC particularly did not like this move. Um, their official, uh, I have a quote here, says, um, they don't believe that MoviePass is in the best interest of moviegoers, movie theaters, and movie studios. Um, and they don't really have a good justification for that, other than maybe they lose a certain kind of power by if MoviePass becomes really huge. Um, so it's an interesting thing. It's definitely not for me uh, because of my viewing habits. I, I don't want to jump through hoops. Uh, when I go to see movies, I just want to, I want to be able to buy stuff online. I want to be able to, you know, not have to go to the, like buy right at the theater limited by time. Um, and the other thing is it's just the time, like just cause I can see 10 movies a month. doesn't mean I, I necessarily want to, there's, <laughs> you know, and I've been tracking about how many times I go to the theater and I think probably about two to three times a month. And then, you know, I watch a bunch off Netflix or, or rent things at home. 
but as far as actually going, there's usually only two to three things. Um, and a lot of times I buy things or I go see things on opening night and I go, oh, and like I said, you can't buy things in advance. So for instance, it, when I saw that I had, it was packed. So had I not bought my ticket in advance, I probably would have not have gotten in. Um, so it's definitely not, not for me. Um, some people I think would use it a lot. What do you think? Is it, is it something that you would uh, be interested in? Right. We've done a, a little bit of talking about movie pass, I think, between us. I remember the, the day it was announced that they were dropping the price, we immediately got got on a chat room and started talking about it and we're okay, well let's let's talk about movie pass and is this feasible. I think it's a fascinating uh service to look at from any kind like like it seems like something like some kind of economy uh grad student would do a project on like how is this a feasible business model and where are they going with it because MoviePass's biggest biggest like things so far their biggest help the, the thing that's helped them the most has been this huge boom in service since they lowered their price and the publicity that came from it because you're absolutely right it's not a sustainable business model which means they're on a timer they only have so much time before they either have to start changing their service to try to get ahead of people taking advantage of them, or uh, they get ideally, I don't know, bought out by another company, or they, yeah, they cut in on some kind of profit scheme through other mm-hmm. movie theater chains, they're, like getting concessions or something like that. They're hoping that that people will kind of calm down and see maybe one to two movies a month. That's what they're, they're hoping. They're hoping that you, you actually don't go see any so that it's all profit. Um, but they're hoping you'll come down to one to two a month. If, if people are seeing three to five or more a month, that's definitely gonna, gonna tank them. Uh, I was also going to mention the other reason a lot of theaters don't, don't like this is because it cuts into some of their own, um, subscription programs they're trying to develop. I know Cinemark's trying to develop one, uh, AMC has their Stubbs Rewards program. Uh, so they see it as direct competition to some of their own subscription ideas. Right. And it's been fascinating to see, yeah, exactly how theaters take it. Because some have been mum. Some haven't said anything. Um, mostly smaller chains have been pretty quiet about it. Others, like AMC and National Chain and even Cinemark, seem to have... I mean, AMC vehemently came out against it. Like, day one, they, they, they were calling lawyers. Like, how do we stop this thing? Because this isn't okay. Um, fortunately, MoviePass is built through a model where it's on a MasterCard, I think. Yeah, it's, MasterCard. It's, it's a card. Right. It's a card that those registers at those theaters have to take. They can't turn you away. So they'll take your purchase, but they don't like it. They don't want to, and they're trying to figure out how to stop it. MoviePass is one of those things like, kind of like how I, I play video games nowadays. When I was a kid, I had no money, but I had all the time in the world to play all the video games I wanted. Now I've got money, but I don't have time to go to play those video games. Movies are the same way. When I was younger, I would have loved something like MoviePass. Oh my God, it sounds like the greatest thing ever. Um, go see all the movies you want in a month. It's brilliant. But now that I'm older, I don't have time to go do that. And I certainly I can't manage that service and think and, and constantly wonder to myself at the end of a month, wait, wait, did I get my money's worth out of this? You know, did I exactly? Plus, I don't. We've talked about this. I don't want to juggle the whole buying tickets in advance, and it's got to be for a certain screening. And you're certainly not going to get any kind of like IMAX or Dolby Cinema experience. It's going to be a crappy theater. You're probably not going to get a great seat. It's not going to be any like opening night stuff. You're going to have to go see it a week later. So it kind of hinders you a little bit. And if people like you and I, who are doing a movie podcast, don't subscribe to Movie Pass, how viable is it, really? Yeah, and it, it's it's kind of the question of who is it for it's definitely not not for me i mean like you said maybe younger audiences that have a, a lot more time and you know 10 bucks is 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 easy 
And if you're willing to jump through the hoops and and deal with deal with that aspect of it, um, you know, I, I could see those people using it. But again, the older you get, I feel it's a it's a time thing. And I'm really selective of what I want to see in the theater. And there was this argument that came out that said like, oh, people will uh, give kind of lesser known movies a chance or maybe they'll go check out that indie movie that they weren't real sure about because it's not costing them any more. Um, and that might happen, but I know for me, I, I don't want to waste my time on a mediocre movie. I remember I was going to go see uh, Kingsman, Golden Circle, and it got really pretty mediocre reviews and so I didn't go and I thought like if I had movie pass, would I, would I have gone to see that? If it didn't cost me anything, would I go? And I still think the answer is no because I, I you know, it still costs me time, even if it, even if it doesn't cost me money. And there's tons of other movies that I that I could be seeing that I've missed that I need to catch up on. Classics, things from last year, who knows? Right. And movie po- movie pass poses another interesting question: Are we com- and probably not? Just to get get out in front of this answer, are we coming up on some kind of bubble bursting regarding monthly subscription services? Because we've talked about this. I have like eight subscription services and every month despite the fact that i don't have to like check a box and like physically pay a bill or anything i don't have to write a check these services are drawing money from my bank account and every month i wonder to myself maybe there's a couple i can get rid of maybe i don't need them and i think okay spotify who am i kidding i listen to music all the time netflix well no because we have conversations like this not to mention series i watch hbo shoot hbo has tons of cool stuff like game of thrones or or, or last week tonight or whatever i want to watch Amazon Prime, I get Prime service out of that. Those are things I use all the time, and I can easily use. Movie Pass is one where I have to like physically commit a few times a month to sit down and schedule a time to go see these things. Mm-hmm. It's way harder to use than something like Spotify. And if I'm listening to Spotify or I'm watching a movie on Netflix and I find a song I don't like or a movie I don't like, big deal. I can skip to the next one, or I can stop watching, or who cares? Like Movie Pass. If you have MoviePass and you go see three crappy movies, you you may not feel like you got your money's worth even though you did. Right. So I just don't know if it's a bargain, yeah, really, yeah. even <laughs> though it totally is, like, in the big scheme of things, a bargain, but I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I think people's uh, reality of what their, their time is like and their time is worth is really going to be the key factor. And, and like you said, we've reached a point of subscription saturation. And, you know, originally Netflix was great because you're like, oh, I'm going to cut my cable bill in half. But now we're getting to the point where people have as many subscriptions, so many subscriptions that they're, they've kind of equaled out their any savings that they would have gotten by cutting, cutting the cord, um, right. as they say. I think we will have more to say on MoviePass in the coming weeks. I don't think this is the last time we'll visit this. If anything, it's the first yeah, uh, of it'll many. It'll be interesting to see where it is in in like six months, in a year from now. Right. It, it really will be. And as a brief footnote before we move on, um, it is interesting to see that essentially data mining, that collecting data can substantiate a service like this, at least in the interim. Because Partially, yeah. It doesn't seem like a feasible business model, and the only way it works is because they're collecting data off it, and it, it makes you wonder, where does that go, and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> so, yeah. I think that that will help cover costs for a little bit, but in the end, they're they're going to have to cut some sort of back-end deals with with studios or, or theater chains um, right. to keep it sustainable. So we'll, so we'll see what happens. Mm, stay tuned. 
Anyway, the last thing we need to get to before we wrap this episode, you saw a film this week, I think, uh, that I haven't. And you know a lot about this because you know a lot about this genre of cinema. What is the movie? <laughs> it is Blade of the Immortal, uh, which is by the Japanese director uh, Takashi Miike. Um, I first came across his work back in the early 2000s uh, with a movie called Ichi the Killer, um, which was kind of one of the first kind of extreme Asian uh, films I saw, which are incredibly violent, very graphic violence. Um, but they cover a lot of taboo topics or, I mean, it's, it's some pretty intense stuff uh, to watch. Uh, Chan Wook Park, um, director of Old Boy, kind of falls into that same uh, category of directors. And uh, so anyways, Blade of the Immortal is his 100th film. 100 that's a big deal yeah that's nothing to scoff at and and he's only um he's in his his, his mid 50s so i mean that is a, a ton of, of of work um and so anyways the film itself is um about this immortal warrior named uh manji played by i've a, got a I, i've got a summary pulled up i don't know if you you want to take it or yeah I no I, I wanted to cover the summary go for it please okay. yeah so it's uh manji who is played by takuyo kimura is this immortal warrior. He's kind of cursed by a witch and he's essentially kind of like Wolverine. He's, he gets hurt and then he heals up. There were these mystical blood worms like inserted into his body. And so he, he cannot die. So that's kind of the prologue of the film. Fast forward 50 years later, we meet Rin, who is the daughter of the local shogunate and teacher of a dojo and fencing school. And one day, the antagonist, uh, played by uh, Soda Fukushi, comes, and it's kind of one of these classic samurai kung fu movie storylines of your kung fu or your sword play is inferior to mine. You need to you need to become <laughs> subservient to me and my school. They resist. They fight. He he slaughters all of Rin's family and leaves leaves her just kind of alone. And so she seeks out uh, the immortal warrior, uh, Manji, to exact revenge. And uh, Rin is played by Hannah Sugisaki, who, in an incredible role, and she's 20, but she, I mean, she looks super young, I mean, like a t young teenager, um, but really incredible acting uh, throughout the whole film. And so she seeks out uh, Manji to exact revenge uh, for the death of her family. And, that, you know, that's just a classic revenge uh, kind of kung fu archetype. Um, and then the rest of the film deals with them kind of fighting their way up the chain of command. There's all these assassins that come after them. And it also deals with the dynamic, this father, kind of surrogate father-daughter uh, thing between those two as well. And what's really interesting is that, the, you know, there's lots of fight scenes, lots, lots of action, but everyone you meet kind of has a, a deep backstory. There's lots of dialogue. It, it's really long. It's two hours and 20 minutes. I mean, that's pretty long for an action, you know, samurai kung fu kung fu movie uh but it just it really takes its time and everyone you meet is a different colorful character and there's lots of dialogue and either you learn about their rich backstory or they'll have some sort of you know wisdom uh to to say and then there's lots of fight, fighting and it i mean it is gruesome lots of people getting stabbed sliced up and every time he gets uh injured he of course heals back um so that's kind of you know, the film in a nutshell, and, you know, it ends with a huge, you know, big fight where three people are up against hundreds of people and everyone get, gets slaughtered. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well done. It, it looks 
it looks really convincing. It's based off um, a manga of the same name. And there's so many shots that just look like they're out of a printed book. Like, you know, when I was thinking, it was like, this has to be based on something because it feels like scenes are being recreated from the original uh, manga. Hmm. So when you say out of a printed book, the first thing I think, being a very Western film viewer, is comic book movies here. Uh, when you say that, do you mean something like a Marvel film, or do you mean like Frank Miller's Sin City? How, how accurate are we here? Uh, I would say... Do you mean like Dick Tracy? No, like Sin City is what I'm thinking. I, and I haven't actually read uh, the original manga, but there's just a lot of scenes that they look like they're trying to recreate a page from a comic. Right. So how many of Takashi... Takashi? Takashi, Takashi Miike. Takashi, Takashi Miike. How many of his films have you seen? Do you, uh, I mean, do you know like an accurate number? Probably about four. The last one of his I saw was called uh, 13 Assassins, uh, which is a little bit like uh, Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven. Uh, but it's these, these 13 Samurai that defend this village from this onslaught horde. And it's, you know, there's huge set pieces, elaborate costumes, um, you know, right. the, the whole the whole works. Right. I know a lot of this seems to be set in, from what I've seen from the trailer and kind of what I've read about it, it seems to be set a lot in nature. And I think that's kind of a prevalent theme in Takashi's work. Um, how much of this was outside? Was a lot of exterior shots, interior shots? And what did that do for the film? I, I think it's actually, the majority of it is outside. Like, you know, there's gardens, there's trees. It, it's definitely, it's very, everything feels rural. Right, and that's one of those things that I think is kind of prevalent in Eastern East Eastern films. Um, the idea that everything is kind of... I don't know, there's there's kind of a, a ties that bind theme to it in, in, in nature and how that's presented. What are some other themes that, that were kind of prevalent in the film? Well, like I said, there's the, there's the father-daughter dynamic. And, you know, we, we also learn uh, right at the beginning of the film that, that Manji, the immortal warrior, has lost his, his younger sister, um, that, which is part of how he becomes the immortal warrior. She is killed, and then his, uh, like, this witch character makes him immortal. Um, and then there's, there's also, there's this subplot of these, all these warring kind of samurai schools and so you have like the big, big bad guy who's going around kind of trying to snuff out these other schools or say you have to be under our, our dominion. Um, yeah, that, those are the things that, that really uh, stick out for me. Did you watch this on sub or dub? Sub, never dub. All right, never dub. You're a never dubber. All right, I can respect that. Um, watching it, yeah, that's probably the way to go with live action. That's something that's always... God, it kind of got me watching a dub live action just does not does not work for me my brain cannot cannot work it out um two and a half hours how's that runtime feel does it feel like it drags or does it feel you know it could appropriate? it could be a little bit it could be 10 to 15 minutes shorter well it's not much it's not like an hour shorter like no. they can tighten it up a little no and and i knew that going and i said i looked up the the runtime and i was like oh wow two hours 20 minutes jeez um, um let's Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, but it's 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 definitely you know it takes its time. There, there's lots of real impressive shots, and you meet all these, like I said, different fascinating characters. And there's so much about the costuming and how they carry themselves, and you know it's almost like a wrestling match where there's lots of epic dialogue, but back and forth before they fight or during the fight. 
Right, and I kind of wanted to ask about that. These moments of tranquility kind of clash against moments of violence. Yeah, moments of kind of, you know, big big set pieces, big things happening. How does that work? Do you feel like that's all balanced relatively well, or did you find yourself kind of yawning at the slow parts and, and kind of waking up at the fast ones? You know, it, it's one of those things uh, where it's it's done enough that it's stylistically tasteful, but it's not overdone. There's not tons of slow-mo you know, Zack Snyder style where every other, <laughs> every other action shot has to be, be slow-mo. And the other thing that's impressive is there's, there's some really big fights with like, I mean, hundreds of extras, you know, oh, wow. so just like the scale of it is, is real impressive to watch. Right. And, and that was the other thing. Is it, does it turn into a, I mean, it probably doesn't turn into a whole CGI fest. I would hope. What kind of fight scenes are we talking? Are we talking Tarantino, lots of blood? Are we talking actors on wires or is it very practical? Um, where did it land? It's a little bit of both. It it is it's very violent. There's I mean lots lots of blood soaked everyone lots of like mouths filled with blood, which is I I feel like a, a weird thing about extreme Asian cinema. You have characters who are just like I mean like I said blood all over their teeth. It's like it's like a thing. Yeah. Um But I mean yeah, really violent. There is some wire work, but it's mostly not. It's mostly everyone. Everything's taking place like on the ground or you know those sort of things. And it, and it it. It goes into the realm of like the super, not superhero, but that you know, superhuman level of of skill and and, and of fighting and of endurance and like a lot of those films. It it, it reminds me a lot of it, Hero, uh, the Jet Li film. Um, it's a similar thing where these characters are obviously kind of more myth than than human, as well as like the nature um, aspect of it. I know you mentioned the the father daughter kind of theme and and i wanted to ask about kind of the chemistry between those characters um often when you're watching a foreign film and you're watching characters speaking in a different language it's kind of difficult to kind of eke out those performances but i wanted to see what you thought did you feel like those they worked? did you feel like those those actors worked well together or was there ever a point where you kind of were you able to suspend your disbelief i guess is the question did you did did it fool you were you kind of in the world of the film or did it start to feel like okay i'm just watching actors on a screen talking to each other uh right well uh Manji, the immortal warrior. So he is is um, I mean he's kind of the anti-hero. Like he he doesn't initially want to help Rin's character out. He doesn't want to. He's like, no, that's you're this this is a fool's errand. You're just gonna die trying to get revenge. This isn't worth my time. And you're a child. I don't like. I'm not even gonna deal with you. Um, so he's he's kind of stereotypical in that way. But then uh, Hana Sugisaki is incredible. Like just there's a lot of really tough or difficult acting that she had to do um, like in her pleas to get, get help from characters or when she's confronting um, other people that are responsible for the murder of, of her family. So uh, yeah, I would say that their dyna- dynamic is incredibly convincing. Having seen roughly 4% of te- Takashi <laughs> made me, I God, every Mikkei. time with this, Mike, <laughs> I need to just like dub it. In, in in post and I'll just have one voice of me saying Takashi Miike over and over and just stick it in every time I screw it up. Having seen 4% of his work, how do you feel this holds up to his other films that you've seen? Um, I mean, like I said, I would uh, I would need to really see a lot more of the library. It, it's definitely in his style of this, you know, hyper-violence, hyper-graphic violence. Um, it doesn't t- touch on, a lot of times he touches into kind of more perverse taboo areas that this doesn't really get in into any of that uh thankfully um 
but it, like I said, the the three to four films of his I've seen, I've been really impressed with. And it's, like I said, it's definitely its own style. Um, and I, I would probably recommend this for fans of the genre. You know, pe- people that, if you don't like reading subtitles and you don't like kung fu movies, you know, it may, may not be for you. But uh, I really enjoyed it, and I would highly recommend it to fans of the genre and maybe people looking to get into uh, some extreme Asian cinema. Hmm. And that was the last question I wanted to ask for people who are not too familiar with the genre, who maybe struggle to watch foreign films. Uh, would you recommend this as maybe a first foray or where would you put it? If not, would you say watch a few movies first, then watch this? What do you think? I, I, I think you probably need to start somewhere a little bit simpler because there's a lot to take in. First of all, there's, you know, reading subtitles. You got to get used to that. Um, you maybe need to be a little bit more familiar with the Kung Fu genre and maybe some of these archetypes of, of those style of films. And I think maybe, maybe see uh, an earlier uh, Takashi Miike film. I I think uh, 13 Warriors would actually be a probably better start and then kind of go into this afterwards. All right. Well, would you recommend this movie? Absolutely. All right. (laughs) Highly recommended. (laughs) <laughs> all right well is there anything uh i don't know anything else we missed anything else you want to cover uh no other than next week we'll be talking about uh the disaster artist yes the disaster artist i'm i'm genuinely excited to see this movie yeah the more i i see about it, i see lots of positive reviews and um just the whole story is kind of intriguing and the trailers uh, i've seen uh look good as well Right. Any plans to see The Room before you see The Disaster Artist? It, it is playing nearby, so I'm definitely going to try to uh, get a screening in, but I, I'm not sure if it's going to happen. All right. So first time in, you're going to try to catch a public screening of The Room? Well, it's actually playing uh, close by where I'm at, so I may be able All to right. get, get one in. I first I've only seen it once. I would like to watch it again before I go see The Disaster Artist this week. Uh, I'm going to try to snag a copy from a friend and see if I can watch it. Um, first time I've seen it is in a pri- it's I think it's kind of like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, they do public screenings, and it's kind of a spectacle, or you can see it alone. So if you go see it in public, I'm curious to see if there's any shenanigans, and if it affected your experience of the film. Um, but for all I know, then maybe they're just running screenings because the disaster artist is coming out, so it could just be a totally normal thing. I have no idea. It, Either way... It's also interesting to note that you cannot stream this any you can't stream the room anywhere like you have to buy the dvd you cannot rent it you cannot stream it so which is an interesting i I think one of these things because it's so kind of uh infamous that they capitalize on well if you want it if you want to see this spectacle and laugh at my movie you're gonna have to buy it and it's funny this is probably a conversation we should say for the next show but it's funny that this film is i think put out and distributed by tommy Wiseau, the creator of the film even though it's such a terrible movie, it's got such a cult following, I'll bet he could charge a freaking fortune to put it on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh my god. Like, the, yeah, the, the streaming rights to The Room have got to be egregiously outrageous. I mean, they have to be. Right. Hmm. Either way, we'll see it. We'll talk about it. It'll be great. So, uh, with that, I suppose, this has been Off Script Episode 2. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper, and this is the home of bold cinema. Ah, yes, this is the home of bold cinema, right? (laughs) The boldest of bold cinema. And we'll see you next week. All right.